Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Neil Phelan, Jr., preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Good to be here this morning. I've enjoyed our song service and this opportunity to be together again. And um, hope you've been very prayerful before you've come today that the Lord would bless us together. I've learned that over the years of preaching that Brother Sonny asked for us to preach in power and demonstration of the Spirit, which uh, we always hope to do. But I've learned that preaching really, the most important thing for you is that you're taught something. Uh, I know that there may have been a time among our people that if you just got up and went after it, you know, you may not have taught very much. But some people might have thought, well, you preached a really great sermon because you were really filled with the Spirit. And I realized that we need to learn when we come to God's house uh, from His Word. That, that's something that I loved when I came to the Primitive Baptist people. Uh, I felt like that I learned so much from our pulpits and from men that would, had studied God's Word, that understood the doctrines of God's grace. And I like to listen to people in the pulpit, but also we had a collection of tapes down in the basement, and uh, we didn't have all the recording things we have now on the Internet. But I used to like to drive along and just hear a sermon and learn. I wanted to learn something new. And I hope that's the way that you are in your Christian experience. You know, Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if, if you're wanting to know truth, then you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You want to know about righteous things. So this morning, hopefully, I can teach you something that uh, maybe you've thought about before that you already know, maybe remind you about it. And I want to talk to you this morning about a subject that's very dear to our people, and that's the subject of predestination. Uh, The reason that this is on my mind is uh, Marilyn came home the other day, and she had a couple in her office. And they asked her where we went to church, and uh, the husband said, your grandmother went there. Those people believe in predestination. And uh, the lady said, well, I believe in predestination. And Marilyn said, well, of course she does. She reads her Bible. (laughs) If you read your Bible, (laughs) you know you're going to come across that term, right? Uh, But really, what does that term mean? I find a lot of people that realize that there are things in the Bible like predestination and election and other terms like that, and and they kind of know they're in there, but they kind of shy away from them as well. Uh, They avoid those subjects because uh, they really don't want to take the opportunity to learn about it. And we as God's people should always want to learn about anything that we find in the Scriptures. Election is one of those other terms that we find that people uh, like to shy away from. They know what's in there. But what kind of God would we have if we had a God that did not predetermine things? I mean, really, when you're talking about the subject, it somewhat defines God himself. We would have a God that did not see the end from the beginning. We would have a God that was caught off guard when things happened, and now he has to react to it. Uh, He didn't know what was about to happen. Well, that really wouldn't be much of a God. He would not uh, be omniscient. And all the powers of God would not be there if he was not a God of predestination. So we know that our God is a God that does predetermine things and that he is in control of things all the time because he knows what's going to happen before it happens. 
I was reading a commentator this week on this subject, and he said this about the subject of predestination. He said, the peace of the Christian church has been disrupted due to the misunderstanding which surrounds this word. It behooves the church to consider the divinely intended meaning of this word by carefully examining the six critical passages where it is used. A misunderstanding, he says, and true, it is a misunderstanding about predestination. That's the reason that sometimes people reject it or they will accuse us of believing something that is really not biblical. They throw into the subject of predestination that God predestinates everything. He predestinates the way I comb my hair this morning. He predestinates what we are going to have for lunch. He predestinates the shirt I chose to put on. He predestinated the car accident, all the bad things that happen, and all the sin that's committed, my sin, your sin. Well, predestination, that's not the predestination of the Bible. When we look at predestination in the Bible, it has to do with our salvation. That's all it teaches about. Now, there are terms in there about the providence of God and things that God has, you know, brings to pass. But when you look at the terms, it has to do with God saving a people that he chose before the world began, and he did it. <laughs> They're saved people because God predetermined to save those very people. So, as the, the uh, commentator said, it's used in six critical passages in the New Testament. So this morning I want to go through the New Testament and I want to look at all six of those critical passages so that you'll know where they are, that you'll have an understanding of it. Uh, if you've taken notes, you can write these down. I think it's a good idea to always take notes when you come to God's house because there's some things that you want to go back and you want to read about if you're a student of God's Word, if you really want to understand the Scriptures. So it's used six times in the Bible. I'll give them to you right now that we're going to go through them. It's, it's found in Acts 4.28. Romans 8, 29, and 30. 1 Corinthians 2 and 7. Ephesians 1 and 5. And Ephesians 1 and 11. Now, in those places, you're not going to find the word predestinate or predestinated in every one of them. But what you are going to find is the Greek word from which the word is translated from. And if you have a lexicon or something like that, you'll find, you can look it up like that. But it's translated from a Greek word, and I'm going to try to pronounce it for you. I'm not a Greek scholar. But it's like any other word. If you don't know a word in the English language, what do you do? You go to the Webster's or something like that. You look up the word. You understand the definition. You know, you don't have to speak Greek to understand a Greek word or even pronounce it correctly. I remember years ago, you'd be watching television and maybe a news station and they'd use the word scenario. Then they started calling it scenario. Well, whichever way you want to say it, it means the same thing, right? So uh, concerning the Greek in this word, it's translated from a word proorizo. That word is found six times in the New Testament, and I'm going to give you the definition of it. And we're going to see the Bible is actually going to translate this definition itself for you. We speak of the Bible being its own interpreter, so a lot of times you find the Bible interpreting itself for us as we read it, and so we learn what words mean. But this word means to determine before. Determine before. But it also means to limit in advance. 
to limit in advance. So God determines to do so before, and he limits in advance. So let's just think about if I determine I'm going to go to Little Rock this afternoon. I have made that determination before to do it. Now, we know God, when he determines to do something, he does it, right? I'm not determined to go to Little Rock and have a flat tire. But when God determines to do something, you know it's going to come to pass. But it means to limit in advance. So if I've determined to go to Little Rock, just think of all the places that I'm not going to go. I'm not going to Hot Springs, right? Or Arkadelphia or Garden or anywhere else, I've made a determination to do something. And when you determine it, then you are limiting that place and there's things that are left out, okay? But it doesn't mean that if God predetermined to save a people, and if you understand the doctrine of election that God chose a people before the world began, you know he didn't choose everybody. So he's limiting that in advance to the object of his grace, the ones that he chose. But that doesn't mean that it's a small number. Some people, that's a problem that people have sometimes with election and predestination. They think, well, God has a small number then. He's chose these people. And they'll say, well, what if somebody wanted to be predestinated? Or what if somebody wanted to be elected? And they can't because God's already selected that number. Well, the truth of it is there are no people like that. If somebody loves God and they want to live with him in glory then they're already elected and predestinated. So you don't find people wanting to get into heaven that loves Jesus Christ that's excluded from it, and they can't get in. (laughs) So it doesn't mean that it's a small number. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks of the people that God redeemed as a number of sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And he does that for us to understand that when we understand election and predestination, that God is not speaking of a small number of people, that he's speaking of a large number of people. Let me just put it to you like this. Let's say that I predetermine in advance to cut all the pine trees in Arkansas. Is that a small number or a large number? That's a large number. It's probably more trees than any other kind of tree in Arkansas. You know, we probably do well to get rid of some of them. We wouldn't have so much pollen. But anyway, I'm kind of getting you to understand what this term means. And I want you to see as we go through this that this is a very large subject in the Bible. If you're going to ignore the doctrines of election and predestination, predestination itself, you're going to ignore some very critical passages in the Bible that are spoken by the apostles, by Jesus Christ, and most importantly, that was believed on by the church in its very awakening. God's people, the Christian church in the very beginning, believed in the doctrine and understood the doctrine of predestination, of pro-orizzo. They understood it. They knew what it meant. They embraced it. They rejoiced in it. It gave them great comfort. It enabled them to understand our salvation. And we hear people talking a lot today about God's plan of salvation. Well, if we understand the doctrine of predestination, then we're going to understand God's plan of salvation. And if you really think about it, how many plans of salvation does God have out there concerning the Christian churches? <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever signs hanging there, that's another, uh, they've got a different plan of God's salvation. Well, God tells us his plan of salvation concerning the doctrine of predestination. So let's go to the first place that we find it in the New Testament. And although God makes statements in other places, we're going to look at the in Acts 4.28. 
Now, here in Acts 4.28, Peter, I'm going to give you another one later, but Peter has already used this spoken of God's predestination before Acts 4.28, but this is where the very Greek word is used. So if you're writing it down, you want to look it up. It's found in Acts 4.28. And here, Peter is actually praying to God. Now, would Peter be praying to God about a false doctrine? (laughs) You know, Peter, he's praying to God and he's going to mention this word so we know he's speaking the truth. And as he spoke it, we know the church is hearing what Peter is preaching on that day or praying on that day. And they said they were all in one accord when he, pre- when he prayed this prayer, so they all believed it. Now, if I can see the Christian church in the very beginning, and Peter is there, and he's praying, and they all were of one accord, and they believed what Peter was praying, shouldn't we as a church believe the things that Peter was speaking on that day? Sure we should. But this was immediately after Peter and John had been apprehended by the officials. Uh, Peter had healed the man at the uh, temple. And people uh, believed in Christ because the man uh, gave a witness that that this man healed him and that, that he was Christ's disciples. And they began to listen to Peter and John, and this made the Pharisees and Sadducees jealous. And they threatened Peter and John. And they said, don't speak this man's name anymore. Don't preach Christ. Don't preach on the resurrection. We don't want to hear about it anymore. And we're going to see the fruition of that later in Acts, how that uh, they were not only threatened, but they were apprehended. But here they're just threatened. And, of course, I'm sure that the church was very worried about that. I mean, if you had people that uh, approached me and Dan and said, don't preach the doctrines of grace anymore, uh, we're going to... We knew that we could possibly be locked up or have our heads cut off for preaching it. I mean, the church, wouldn't we want to come together and pray that the Lord would spare us from all of this? And that's what they did. They came together and prayed that they would not be persecuted because they were preaching Jesus Christ. And so here is Peter's prayer. And in the midst of this beautiful prayer, they're all of one accord as they're praying. And I hope when we pray here, everybody's listening and they're of one accord. But this term is you. So let's look at Acts chapter 4. And we're going to begin at his prayer here. His prayer begins in verse, I'm going to start reading in verse 24. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And said, and we don't really know who's praying this prayer. <clears throat> to me, when I read this, it's like everybody's in harmony with this prayer. They're kind of praying together. I don't think I think that's the reason they didn't give the person praying. <clears throat> and with one accord, and said, "Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is." Well, that's a testimony of God's power that He was able to protect them. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, and this is, he's going to quote the second, the second psalm. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers would gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. And here's our term. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before. Now here the Bible is its own interpreter. These two words determined before are come from the Greek word proorizo. So determined before to be done. 
And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Here's Peter praying. And in this prayer, he's praying to God and he's quoting the second psalm. And he's making a statement that everything that has just happened to Jesus Christ was predetermined before by God. Including Herod and all the people that had gathered together against Jesus. Notice what he says. David said this, the heathen are raging. They're upset that Christ is here. The kings of the earth, Herod, Pontius Pilate, stood up. The rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus. And he mentions Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and others there, that this was all predetermined of God. Now, think about that with me for just a moment. This being true, then we know that the death of Jesus Christ was not some accidental thing that happened. That God was not caught off guard. That it wasn't the free will of man that suddenly decided that he is going to get rid of Jesus and God knew nothing about it and had no plan before it happened. In other words, God had already said this is exactly what's going to happen because it is his plan. And this is the way that he is going to redeem his people. Look over at Psalms uh, 2 with me for just a moment. I want you to see a word that's used there. Because sometimes when we're talking about God's foreknowledge, we miss the fact that there are things that are in the Bible that are exact. So exact that there's no way that it would be humanly possible for it to come to pass unless God orchestrated the whole thing. Psalms 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Well, Peter just quoted that. It's good to know the Bible, you know, when things are going on. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bands asunder, cast away their cords. Notice, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The Lord's laughing at them. You're just doing exactly what I said you're going to do. This is my plan. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. But I love the next verse. It's my favorite verse in this psalm. Because in spite of the hatred of man for Jesus Christ and their desire to get rid of him and crucify him and have their own way and their own religion, notice what God said. Yet have I set my king on the holy hill of Zion. In spite of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the will of the Gentiles and everybody there saying crucify this man, away with him, God still set him up as king of kings and lord of lords because he had predetermined to do it. Now there's a word in this psalm I want you to look at and that word is counsel. The kings of the earth sent themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They were really taking some counsel. They were making some big plans. There's people in the world today that's making big plans. You know, they got these big plans. They're probably going to get rid of all the Christians. They're going to burn all the Bibles. They're going to shut everybody down. Not going to believe in Jesus anymore. Do you think that's going to happen? No, that's not going to happen. The Lord's in sovereign control of these things. 
But yet the word counsel is an interesting word to me. And I want you to see it in a couple of places. And Matthew, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn over there. And by the way, remember this. Psalms 2 was written 1,000 years before Christ came. This was foreordained, predetermined of God, and spoken of. It's spoken of a thousand years before, but in the determinate counsel of God, I mean, God was, was there before he ever created the world. So it was in the mind and purpose of God before the world was ever created. But this word counsel is an interesting word because when you go and you read the New Testament, and when this is all coming to pass, in Matthew 22 and 15, we read this. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. <laughs> Some say they're going to take counsel. And then we read about them taking counsel. <laughs> Isn't that specific? I find that really interesting. And then you go over to Matthew 27. And uh, the morning had come. They'd had the Lord's table. And the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Who's in control here? God, God's in sovereign control. He's in control of your salvation, my friends. He is the Savior of his people. One commenter said this on concerning Herod and Pontius Pilate. He said, the action of Herod and Pontius Pilate and crucifying Jesus Christ is said to have been predetermined or foreordained by the hand and will of God. This indicates that Christ's mission, especially his death and resurrection, was not ultimately the result of human will, but originated in the eternal counsel of God, which decreed the event determining all its primary and secondary causes, instruments, agents, and contingencies. I love that because it's all the primary, secondary causes. And you think about all the different things that were going on that brought all of this to pass. There's primary, secondary, there's instruments, there's agents, there's people, there's laws, there's kings, there's governors. All of that, and the Lord brought it all to pass. Well, let's look at our next passage. Let's go to Romans 8. 29 and 30. Here we find the actual term is used so that if somebody said, well, you know, I really uh, don't read my Bible in Greek, (laughs) so I didn't know that was over there. Well, you know it's here because the very words are used here in Romans 8, 29 and 30. And if we're honest people and sincere people, we cannot read these words without wanting to understand what they mean. They have a meaning. But we're going to start at eight, at verse 28 because this is a wonderful setup for this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now that's limiting, isn't it? I'd ask you this morning, does everybody love God? No, everybody does not love God. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people that hate God. So this is already a limiting factor, and it might even cause us all to think, how much do I love God and how much do I love God? For them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So we got some things that are going to be working together for a people who are limited to people that love God, 
to people who are called. This calling has to do with our regeneration or the new birth. So if you're born again, God has called you from a state of death in trespasses and in sins to life in Christ Jesus. You are a called person. That call came from God's mind and purpose before the world began when he chose a people and he determined to call them and regenerate them and give them spiritual life to bring them into a relationship with him spiritually. We've got to have that relationship with him spiritually to understand spiritual things. But anyway, then we come into this term, for whom, these are the same people, he did foreknow. Now here's another limiting factor. God foreknow knew everybody, right? God's omniscient, so we have to admit God foreknew everybody that would ever be born. He foreknew you. But how did he foreknow you? In a casual way? In a caring way? This speaks of those that he foreknew in love. He foreknew in love. These are the ones that he elected. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So here the term is used describing God's actions and eternally decreeing both the objects and goal of his plan of salvation. The objects were those he foreknew in love that he's going to call, that he called. And then we see his goal in this is that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now what is that image of Jesus Christ anyway? We know that Jesus... We're not going to be like Jesus. We're not going to be Jesus. But the Bible speaks of Jesus as holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. In other words, it's talking about our glorification when we are made anew, when we are no longer without sin in our resurrection. That's what it's talking about, the resurrected state of these bodies and these souls and these spirits. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty good thing to me. <laughs> I mean, if I'm looking on one hand about the way that I'm going to have to perform and I'm going to get to heaven and the things that some people tell me I got to do and I got to live and I got to get all my good works on one side. They got to outbalance my bad works. And then I read here that God predetermined to save me and that I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's pretty good news to me. Right. I mean, if you really realize what kind of a sinner that we really are, that's, right. that's got to be something to rejoice in. Amen. And I believe the early church did rejoice in that. And then we see, moreover, on top of that, <laughs> whom he did predestinate. Well, okay, here's some more benefits to these people that God predetermined to save and conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, he called them. He's calling people today. He's regenerating people today by the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we believe here in this church. It's out there on the wall, hanging on the wall. If anybody wants to know about our articles of faith, it's hanging out there that we believe in the immediate call of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Man has nothing to do with it. I was listening to somebody on the radio this morning preaching, and they, or they were saying that God put His Spirit within us and gave us the power to transform ourselves that we might become God's children. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how... <laughs> Did I do anything to become my father's child? 
You see, the terms in the Bible are, are given to us that we can understand it as humans. And when we're talking about being born from above, then we know that that was the sovereign work of God. So here we're speaking of that we're called and that we're also justified. We've been justified from our sins, from the fall. We stand before God as justified. We stand before God as innocent. That's because of God, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. And then he also glorified. That word is used in different ways when we hear it preached. Some people say it has a future tense to it. It's really not a future tense. They say we're going to be glorified one day, and we are. But actually, we were glorified by Christ upon the cross. The word glorified means honor. We are highly honored people that God loved us before the world began, not because of anything we did. Let's keep this straight. You know, when we talk about election and predestination, we're not thumbing our lapel. We're not bragging on ourselves. We're bankrupt, guilty sinners. And the fact that Christ died for us was a glorious thing. And we're glorified in that we are God's children. And Jesus Christ is our Savior and our brother. <laughs> isn't, that a isn't that glorious? You might say, well, I've been glorified because my brother is the President of the United States or something like that. That might give you some glory. The fact that Christ died for us, that is a very, very glorious thing. So, the goal was to be conformed to the image of His Son. This word might is something that somebody might say. Well, it says that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Doesn't that sound kind of like it's a possibility? It's just a possibility. Is that what it means? No. No. <laughs> The English term, this term is used, you know, uh, in the English language a long time. In our vocabulary, it has come in many places to mean a possibility. But if you look it up, uh, that's not what it means. It's, it's like this. If I hold this microphone up here, I let it go that it might fall to the ground. Well, it's going to, right? Gravity is going to fall. That's what the term means. If you look up the Greek, it means it will be. It will be. So what God is saying here is it will be. <laughs> you will be called. <laughs> you have been glorified. <laughs> These are promises to God's people. I want you to look down a little bit further, though, because we're talking about limiting. And I want you to see the objects of God's grace here in case anybody were to say that this might include everybody that's ever born. Paul says in verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? <laughs> elect. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, well, in your book you wrote and in your sermons, you, you talk about election a lot. Are you a Reformed Baptist? <laughs> I said, no, I just believe the Bible. That's <laughs> what it says. Okay, let's go to the next fourth term. <clears throat> Got a little bit more time here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're just going to Click over here a few uh, pages, and we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, isn't it interesting that there are those that might question this doctrine? But so far, we found it in Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Is this a small subject? Right. No, no. The church was taught it and believed it. So in 1 Corinthians... 
chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. Now this, by the way, this mystery is now revealed. He was, we understand it. Which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, again, as it is written, this is in Isaiah he's quoting from. As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that loved him. This word is translated in verse 7, which God ordained before the world. Proorizo, predestinated. None of the princes knew it. Nobody knew it. Nobody knew it until Christ came. And it was revealed by the preaching of Jesus Christ. And he taught the apostles. And the apostles taught the church. So here, this word, term, has an object. We saw it as the elect a minute ago. But here the object is the wisdom of God. (laughs) This wisdom of God in his plan to save the people that he loved and chose before the world began was predetermined of God. It was forethought, foreknowledge, a plan to save his people. And this wisdom of God includes our glory, the benefits of our salvation. It includes the new birth, our election. It includes the everlasting covenant. This is part of what God's wisdom had planned and predetermined before the world began that the Father would choose, the Son would agree to die for those very same people upon the cross, and the Holy Spirit agreed to regenerate all of those people that God chose and the Son died for. So this is talking about the wisdom of God was predetermined. So when we read that, we understand that when Christ died upon the cross, it wasn't something that God just came up with because they crucified His Son and then God didn't expect it. All of this was already planned of God before the world was ever spoken into existence. You know, the interesting thing about this, (laughs) you come on down a few verses. He said that the princes of the world would not have crucified Jesus had they known about it. And then it comes down here and says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. (laughs) So they couldn't know it anyway. (laughs) But he has revealed it unto you. Because you are born of God's Spirit. Okay, let's go to the next verse. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. So here we got another place. This is the church at Ephesus that's going to be taught this very same truth. And if you want to read these later, you can. So we find it in, not tucked away at the very last of the, ch- the, the book. God said, well, I think I'll put a little thing over here about prayer. It's the very beginning of the book. <laughs> 
It's the very beginning. Oh, Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 4. I like That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1. According as He has chosen us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Now, if God chose you before the foundation of the world, it's too late for you to choose Him, right? Amen. <laughs> He's already chosen you. You say, well, I chose God. I made a decision. I walked down the aisle. Well, God already chose you. Amen. The fact that you wanted to walk down the aisle was the fact that you were already chosen and your, His Spirit was already in you. Amen. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't get the sinner before the Savior. That's right. <laughs> before the foundation of the world that we should be and we will be holy and without blame before Him in love. Isn't that something we just read? That we would be holy and without blame before Him in love. We conform like Jesus. Here's the word. And you don't have to have a translator for this. Having, past tense, predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Amen. Is that man's will? Is that man's free will? The free will of man? No. No, it's not you accepting Jesus. Because he tells us to the praise of his glory, of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Did you know that you're, if you belong to God, you have been made accepted? You were an unclean thing until Jesus Christ died for you upon the cross. But he made you accepted by his substitutionary death upon the cross. Today we hear so much about, well, if you'll accept Jesus, you'll go to heaven. All the soft music is playing. They're trying to get sinners to make a decision. If you'll accept Jesus, you will be born again and you will go to heaven. Do you find anything wrong with that? Do we not have the sinner, the servant, deciding if they want to accept the master? Since when does the servant accept the master? We've got to be made acceptable. Or we're rejected. Rejected. We are made accepted in. Now I'm not saying people that have accepted Jesus are not God's children. Some people think that we say that. When we say, well, you, that's not how you get to heaven. And they say, well, you're just telling me. I've had people tell me that. They don't like it because they think I'm telling them they're not saved. Probably they are. You know, if they've decided they want to live a life and honor Christ and do all those things, they probably are. You know, it's kind of like the little boy that was driving down the, car, the road and his, he thought he was driving the car. But his father's hand was under his kind of guiding the steering wheel. You know, he thinks he's done something. He didn't do anything, but he thinks he did. That's the way a lot of Christians are. They think they've done something. They think they've given themselves spiritual life. They've gotten themselves ready to go to heaven. They've made all the right decisions. No, you, you can't get yourself to heaven. There's, there, there's not a vehicle made today that can get you there. And your free will certainly won't get you to heaven. Here the, a commentator said, well, that's in verse 11. Let's look at that one first. Verse 11, we see... Let's just read on down through there and get to verse 11. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will... I told you we know it now. According to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. 
See, this was God's good pleasure to predetermine this, to, to elect the people, to send his son to die for a people. This was God's good pleasure. He got pleasure in doing so. And then it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's when the world's gone, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Well, when Jesus comes, there's going to be some of his people in heaven, there's going to be some of his people on earth, and he's going to gather them all together in him because he predetermined to save them and he did it. And here we come to the term again. Even in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. This is God's purpose, his counsel, his own will. He predetermined to save these people. And the commentator says this, here it is presented not as a whimsical exercise of raw will or unreasoned impulse, but as the expression of a deliberate and wise plan which purposes to redeem those undeserving sinners who God freely favors as the objects of his mercy. Now that's God's plan of salvation if we're wanting to understand it. Let me give you a couple of places in scripture where this term is really not used. Proorizo is not used. But if we're just casually reading the scriptures, uh, we can find it where we find that the uh, Apostle Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. So we actually see that Peter mentions it twice in Acts. So in Acts chapter 2, right after Peter preached at Pentecost, in verse 22, Peter says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you all, as you yourselves also know. Here it is. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken in with wicked hands of slain. Here it talks about the same thing. God planned it. God determined it. God did it. But we find even Jesus Christ speaks of his death in the same terms. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, this is... Jesus Christ speaking at the Lord's Supper, chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus says, behold, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom... He is betrayed. Jesus is saying this was all determined by God before it ever happened. And you see, this is even prophesied over in Psalms 41 and 9 where we find the psalmist writing, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. That was spoken of, predetermined, came to pass. Now in closing this morning, think about the subject of God predetermining something before it comes to pass. How would the prophets have been able to prophesy anything that would come to pass if God was not a God that predetermined things before, that knew them? They couldn't have prophesied anything. 
They might have said, this might come to pass. This might happen. But they didn't say it in terms like this. It was a statement. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that they knew if somebody was a false prophet was if they prophesied of something and it didn't come to pass, they were supposed to stone that person to death because he was a false imposter. I have a book in my library that, uh, well, several books called the All Series. Herbert Lockyer wrote books called the All Series. It had all the prayers of the Bible, all the men of the Bible, all the women of the Bible, and one of the books is all of the Messianic prophecies in the Bible. There are tons of Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Speaking of Christ, His birth, His ancestry, you know, He's going to become, He's going to be the line of the tribe of Judah. He's going to be born of a virgin. His character, His holiness, His righteousness, His ministry, He's going to perform miracles. He's going to be anointed with the Holy Ghost. Prophecies of His death, prophecies of His resurrection. How could any of that been in the Old Testament if God was not a God of predestination? It couldn't be there. So as we close, I just want to say that when we're talking about the subject of predestination, the Bible's not talking about the way that I parted my hair this morning. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. Now, I will say this. If the way that I parted my hair had something to do with the eternal destiny of God's people, God make me part it some particular way. <laughs> But that has nothing to do with it. I appreciate your attention. I hope this is a blessing for you today. Predestination is a topic that has caused a lot of consternation among Christian people. And I'm thankful that we are in a church that just plainly declares predestination, it's a thing. I mean, if you're in a Christian group that says, well, we don't believe in predestination, it is plainly stated in the Bible. As Elder Phelan just stepped us through, there's plain places here where it talks about predestination. So if you're in a place where you say, I don't accept this idea at all, you're really contesting the plain language of the Bible. From there, I think people maybe struggle with it because they hear a lot of bad ideas projected onto predestination. You mentioned one of them like, well, you're saying that there's some person out there that might love the Lord and want to be in heaven, and at, at the final tally, they're going to come up and say, well, sorry, your name wasn't on the list, so you weren't predestinated, so you're going to hell. That is completely false. That is not what predestination teaches at all. In fact, what predestination teaches is that if you see someone who has that inclination, that loves the Lord, that wants to obey God, that wants to follow God, that is an evidence of the predestinated work on that person's behalf that would have given them those capacities and that desire in the first place. So there's literally no one on this planet who loves God who is ever going to miss out on glory. Amen. I'll tell you this much, predestination is going to get more people into heaven than the Christian systems that are out there that suggest all these hoops you have to jump through. Amen. Because predestination says it's not a matter of free will, it's a matter of he will. There's churches all over the country, a lot of Baptist churches that actually put free will in their name. I think there's one in Glenwood, Free Will Baptist Church. It's a very popular concept that heaven and hell is determined by a free will choice of man. That is a very common concept. It is not what the Bible teaches, but I don't deny that people have a 
willing notion to want to serve God and love God and obey Him and those things. Those things are the result of God's will having moved on their behalf. Had God's will not come into play and regenerated those people, when they were ungodly and without strength, they would have never had any of those inclinations to begin with. If one of God's children is sitting out in the middle of nowhere and never encounters the gospel, if God has willed that that person's going to live in glory based on what Jesus Christ has done, that is what's going to happen. It's based on what he will do, not based on their free will choice of having joined some religious order. So it's really important that we clear those things up, but it's also important that God's people take comfort in this truth. God's not going to fail. This is one of the reasons we sort of branded our church website as successful Savior. It's really tied up in this notion of God's going to do what he's going to do. He chose a people and he's going to save them. And nothing that anyone on this earth is ever going to do is going to overturn the work on Jesus Christ on behalf of one of his children. He is the good, yea, the great shepherd. He delivers all of his sheep to glory. If you love the Lord today and you rejoice in hearing that truth, you should join the church. I publish an open door. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things that are so common in the religion of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.